Before we get started on this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef, I have a favor to ask of you. Let's Talk About Chef is listened to in over 42 countries and over 300 cities around the world. We are so lucky that our podcast is enjoyed everywhere, and every single week when a new episode goes up on Thursday mornings, the best part is watching it quickly being downloaded from New Orleans to Madagascar. That is all thanks to listeners like you. Listeners that enjoy the stories and ramblings on by me about chefs and food. As I have said before, there are over 700,000 podcasts being made in the world right now. That's a lot of shows. And the one way that we can keep growing this one is by word of mouth. If you can take one second from your busy lives to tell someone about the podcast, it is the easiest way that we can keep growing. Let's Talk About Chef can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, the Alexa in your house, and pretty much anywhere else you can think of to listen to podcasts. We are very easy to find. If you want your restaurant or your favorite restaurant or dive bar or whatever shout out on the podcast, you can write to us for that or any other reason to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com. We do take the time to read and respond to everyone. You can also follow me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. Just a quick warning, this episode does contain some stories that may be unsuitable for younger audiences. If you have kids in the car, you might want to wait until later to listen. That's enough from me. Let's get right into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. We all die. That is the one thing that we all have in common. It will happen one day, and that is an inescapable fact of life. Hopefully for most of us that means that one day, far in the future, when we are old, we have lived a life, we will able to be surrounded by loved ones and pass on, but for many of us that is never really the case. Chefs have always been a strange breed. We're different. We just are. The long hours, cramped kitchens, and excessive stress that is a day-to-day occurrence becomes a sort of drug, something that we need, that we crave, and something that we become very good at dealing with. Working in a kitchen, no matter when it was in history, has always been dangerous. The smoke, fire, chemicals, exhaustion, and basic danger that surrounds you from the moment you walk through the door until you leave hours and hours later becomes somehow comforting. It's the world that we live in. There are not very many careers that exist where you have to perform calculated and quick maneuvers while also playing with knives and near vats of hot oil. At the end of every shift every single day after feeding hundreds of people, there was always a thought in the back of my head that I had done it again. I had made it out clean, lived to tell the tale. Most chefs and cooks have the battle wounds on their bodies to prove what we do for a living. The scars, the burns, the 75-year-old feeling knees when we're only 30, and it would probably shock most of you listening to see how well we are at dealing with pain that would cause normal people to scream in anguish. Cutting yourself with a razor-sharp chef knife doesn't happen often, but when it does, most cooks don't notice. Grabbing a hot pan without realizing that it is capable of cooking the flesh of your palm isn't followed by howls of pain. It's usually followed by laughter, and then you just keep going. You just adjust your hands so that the burn isn't being touched too much. We're kind of crazy, and we like it that way. Injury and pain is everywhere in kitchens, but we usually survive. Sometimes, 
we don't. Sometimes the kitchen gods look down and decide that this shift is the end. This shift will be your last. Today on Let's Talk About Chef, we are talking about chefs who never made it out of their kitchens. The chefs who died on the line of duty. In the year 1671, Francois Vittel was scrambling to prepare an elegant feast for King Louis XV of France. Francois was a chef, and he'd spent his life trying to master the art of food. At a young age, he had apprenticed as a pastry cook and then went on to work in the kitchen of Nicholas, the superintendent for all finances in France. Under Nicholas, Francois had learned how to run kitchens like clockwork being able to prepare feasts for hundreds of people, run and manage other cooks to try and tackle the never-ending list of things to be done. Back in the 1600s, you have to remember that there weren't any restaurants. If you were a chef, that meant you cooked for royalty, and the royals of the era threw a lot of parties. Nicholas liked to throw a lot of parties, and with Francois leading his kitchen, those gatherings started to grow more and more opulent. Proteins would be brought in from all over the known world. Seafood would be brought in as fresh as possible to the kitchen to be butchered the day of the feasts. You have to remember that there wasn't any refrigeration, cars or transport other than horse and wagons. I usually get stressed out now ordering and hoping that deliveries show up on time, and I live in a world where I place a telephone call and a truck comes. But back then, sending a letter, sending a message on horseback and waiting for a wagon to come rolling over a muddy and stone-filled roadway must have been nearly impossible to manage. Nicholas the superintendent kept on throwing parties, until the French king Louis XV started to grow jealous of how amazing Nicholas's parties were, and so he threw him in jail to make him stop beating him at who threw the better feast game. Kings could do things like that back then. Finding himself suddenly jobless, but with the reputation of being an amazing chef, Francois went on to work for Prince Louis II of Bourbon at the Chateau de Chantilly. At the elegant and beautiful chateau, Francois not only ran the hotel, but also managed its kitchen, still trying to perfect the art of cooking. It was there that it's believed he invented the dish Chantilly Cream. Louis II of Bourbon liked and respected Francois so much that he allowed him to carry a sword, an honor that was usually reserved for royalty, and Francois carried his sword around with him everywhere he went. In 1617, on the first day of April, a letter came from the king. He would be gracing the prince with his presence and expected a feast for all of the nobles and hangers-on that traveled with him. Back in those days, to get a visit from the king was an honor, although it didn't come without its fair share of stress. You had to impress him, but you couldn't impress him too much, or you ran the risk of being thrown in jail for doing too good of a job, and the prince knew exactly what to do. 
he got his star chef Francois to handle everything. Francois only had 15 days to get ready for the arrival of the king. 15 days to prepare meals, order food, and get ready for feasts for not only the king, but also the 600 French nobles and thousands of others for the three days that they would be staying at the chateau. Francois barely slept for the 12 days leading up to the king's arrival. Every waking moment was spent cooking, cleaning, managing the new and incompetent staff they had managed to hastily hire to try and handle the sheer amount of work to be done. But by the time the 1600 guests and the king of France arrived, they were ready or so they thought to go. On the first night, the fireworks display they had prepared to welcome the king couldn't be seen because a thick fog rolled in and blocked the explosions from the guest view. By the next morning, as Francois stood in his kitchen, an exhausted and completely stressed out wreck, he heard the last thing he wanted to hear. The kitchen had gotten word that the fish delivery wasn't coming. Francois glanced around the kitchen. He had no food to prepare. There would be no feast. Without the massive amount of fish and seafood that had been ordered, there wouldn't be enough food. He had failed. Francois took his sword out of its sheath, the one thing that he had carried around with pride for years, and stabbed it through his heart, dying instantly. As the cooks around him were panicking and screaming in horror after having witnessed their chief committing suicide, no one heard over the noise the sound of the wagon carrying the fish coming over the hill. Peng Fan was a Chinese chef who lived in the southern province of China. He and his restaurant in Foshan were very popular, and well known for one thing, snake soup, a delicacy that he made better than anyone else. As he worked in his kitchen preparing the ingredients for the soup that he made every single day, the delivery came to the back door of the kitchen of a live spitting cobra in a bag. As the stock was boiling on the stove and the vegetables were sautéing, Peng reached for the snake in the bag as he had done countless times before. He held the snake behind its head as it hissed and squirmed on the cutting board, and with one smooth chop from his butcher knife, he swiftly removed the head, moved it to one side, and began to butcher the snake's body to add to the soup. Out in the restaurant, guests were eating and enjoying the air conditioning from another hot day in the south of China. Some of them had come from far away to eat the soup they had heard so much about, the soup that was being talked about all over the province, and they were looking forward to it. Back in the kitchen, Chef Peng was done. The soup was ready. It had been 20 minutes since he had decapitated the snake, and its meat was flavoring the soup, and so he started to clean up his work area, wiping down the cutting board and cleaning the knives. He disposed of the trash and vegetable ends and skins and bones from the snake that he didn't need. He was almost finished, almost ready to go home, when he reached for the head of the snake to throw it away. What Peng didn't know that day, and what still is puzzling to authorities and researchers, is that the snake was still alive. 
The decapitated head of the cobra had been watching Peng the entire time, cutting up its own body. And when Peng reached for the very impossibly still alive head of the cobra, the cobra did what it does best, and it bit down into Peng's hand, sending its venom right into his bloodstream. Guests out in the restaurant heard screaming coming from the kitchen, then silence. When workers in the restaurant ran back to see what was going on, they were met with the sight of Peng lying unconscious on the floor with the bloody decapitated snake head still attached to his hand. For a restaurant that dealt with the specialty of cobra soup, it does seem strange that they didn't have any anti-venom lying around. But snakes aren't known for surviving after having their heads chopped off, and Peng died on his kitchen floor. This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by Season 2 of The Chef Show, available now to stream on Netflix. Chef Roy Choi of Kogi in Los Angeles and John Favreau, the director of Iron Man, The Movie Chef, and The Lion King, are back cooking together and they brought their friends along for the ride. Season 2 of The Chef Show is available now on Netflix. And now, back to the show. Chef Charles Proctor was somewhat of a celebrity. He had risen from a life of being poor in Liverpool to, by the start of the 1900s, becoming a very well-paid and in-demand chef. He learned his craft by doing what chefs did back then, working and learning from true masters. In each kitchen he worked in, he excelled at making and preparing what was cutting-edge food for the time. Back in the 1900s, although long gone were the days of elegant feasts and parties for royals, there was a new type of restaurant diner, the rich. And as new wealthy people began popping up everywhere, millionaires wanted to eat like royals used to, and of course money was no object. Despite what you may believe, the food in the early 1900s could be extremely complicated. It was very hard to make. If you look today at menus from this time period, you would be shocked at how elegant and amazing they were. And again, you have to remember, refrigeration, gas stoves, food processors, blenders, didn't exist. Everything was done by hand, and everything was done daily. It was a hard, demanding job that Charles loved doing, and he was amazing at it. Auguste Escoffier, the greatest chef in history, trusted Charles so much that he hired him to run his newest kitchen, a dining room of unimaginable opulence and a wealthy clientele. It was an honor to run a kitchen of this magnitude, and Charles jumped at the chance, making an astounding 20 pounds a month to do it. The menu from the last meal that Charles ever prepared is historic. It was the ultimate dinner, something that most chefs even today would struggle to prepare. The first course was oysters. The second was cream of barley soup, followed by poached salmon with cucumbers and mousseline sauce. The fourth course was filet mignon with chicken, vegetable marrow, and lyonnaise potatoes. The fifth was lamb with mint sauce, roasted duckling, applesauce, sirloin of beef, green peas, cream carrots, and rice. The sixth was a romaine salad. Seventh, roasted pigeon with watercress, followed by a cold asparagus with vinaigrette. The ninth course was foie gras pâté. And to finish off the meal, desserts of Waldorf pudding, peaches and chartreuse jelly, chocolate and vanilla eclairs, and French ice cream were served. After the meal, the chef stood in his gleaming clean kitchen going over the meal for tomorrow. 
checking how much food he had in his storage, how many lobsters were swimming in the tank on the wall. As he worked, he felt a rumble go through the floor. Then he felt another one. The iceberg had ripped a hole in the side of the Titanic and it had started to sink. Charles had prepared that meal for the first class passengers on the Titanic the last night it sailed. His body was never found. On a busy Friday night in Nashville, Tennessee, one of the worst things that could happen happened to 47-year-old chef Jay Luther. The power went out during dinner service at his popular and very busy Germantown Cafe East restaurant. Power outages happen, but in the restaurant business, they always seem to happen when the dining room is full. The dishwasher always seems to break on long weekends, making calling a repairman twice as expensive and nearly impossible. The wine delivery truck usually breaks down on a Friday. Whatever the reason that the power outage happened to Jay Luther, having been a chef for so long, he was used to the whims and angst of the restaurant gods, and so when the lights went out on the diners and the equipment all turned off, he jumped into action. Chefs cannot assume that the power will come back on. I can tell you from personal experience that when the power goes out, you don't sit around and wait for it to come back on. You act, and that's exactly what Jay did. First thing was to get all of the proteins and seafood out of the low-boy refrigerators on the line and quickly get them into the larger walk-in fridge. Low-boy refrigerators don't keep cold for very long after they lose power, and he wasn't about to waste hundreds of dollars in product. Walk-in refrigerators are insulated. They stay cold longer, and hopefully will stay cold long enough to keep the food safe until the power returned. Jay being smart had a backup plan. He went to the freezer and pulled out bags of dry ice he kept just in case something like this ever happened. The negative 109.3 Fahrenheit frozen chunks were carefully placed into the walk-in around the food so that as it dissolved, it would keep the food cold. The next morning, Jay woke up at home and headed right into the restaurant to see if the power had turned back on. When he got there, he found that it was still out and the hydro crews were working on the whole street to get it fixed. Scared that his dry ice trick didn't work, he went into the kitchen and using the flashlight from his phone went into the walk-in fridge to see if the food was still okay. It was. The dry ice was doing its job. Everything was cold. He breathed a sigh of relief and turned around to leave the walk-in to find that in his panic to check on the food, he had closed the door behind him. The problem with that was that the handle on the fridge on the inside had been broken and he hadn't yet called a repairman to fix it. He was stuck. Jay stood there thanks to the dry ice freezing walk-in and saw that he had zero bars on his cell phone. Not only that, but nobody else was in the restaurant and nobody knew that he was there. Starting to panic, 
he managed to pick up a Wi-Fi signal for a second by putting the phone in the crack at the top of the door, and he quickly set the restaurant's security system off from the app on his phone before he lost signal again. As he stood in the fridge, he could hear the alarm going off and knew that the police would come. He would be safe. In total, four policemen showed up at the cafe. They tried to get through the front door, but it was locked. There were no signs of a break-in. Peering through the windows, they couldn't see anyone robbing the place, so the four policemen assumed that it was a false alarm and left. Before the four cops had even shown up to the cafe, the dry ice had already killed Jay, and it wasn't from the cold. Dry ice is frozen carbon dioxide. As dry ice melts, it releases its gas into the air around it to will hopefully dissipate into the atmosphere. But after a long night melting in the fridge, keeping the food cold, the walk-in was filled with the poisonous gas, and that was what Jay was breathing in all while he was trapped inside. Thirteen hours later, he was found by his co-workers. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me, Brian Clark. I want to thank Netflix and The Chef Show Season 2 for letting me talk about them this week. If you want to write to us for any reason at all, you can send everything to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com. We do take the time to read and respond to everyone. You can also follow me personally on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. We are back next Thursday with another brand new episode of Let's Talk About Chef. And so until then, as always, I'm Brian Clark. Have a great service and have a great week. Yeah.